Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, John McMahon. And joining me on the other line, just back from an appointment at her trusty dentist, Ugh. it's Danielle Hanley. <laughs> Terrible. Not joining us on the other line, Sad. but... <laughs> Sad. But they're an FBI tag team that's been tailing us all night. It was Emily Crandall and Amy Schiller. <laughs> but alas, we've got a lost episode, so we yeah. want to shout them out but they're not here. They're not here. Producer Amy did suggest that if there ever were a Patreon for Not Quite Great Books, we could put the remaining audio, some of which is wildly inappropriate. Although that's not the reason that we're not using that's the audio. That's not the reason. <laughs> surprisingly, uh, on the Patreon. So I wanted, I wanted to keep that in mind. I'm okay, but I feel like there's half a voice <laughs> like on on that that's like able to be <laughs> we had a lot of audio issues and like wi-fi issues and and like dropping yeah. in and out and scheduling yeah. stuff so we recorded season three episode three with amy and emily two of our favorite guests recurring guests we put them together it was like an explosion of yeah. commentary yeah but alas that audio exists only in partial fragmentary form Exactly. But we're going to have Amy and Emily back on maybe between seasons as a little bit of a palate cleanser yeah. um, so that we don't have to wait a whole nother season before we get them. Yeah. And to honor their service uh, to the not quite great books, Patreon that doesn't exist. Maybe by then it will exist. <laughs> maybe by yeah, right. That's definitely going to happen. But All right. alas, we're here. We're here with another go at three American season three, episode three. Here Some of the things that we'll say, we'll try to shout them out where we remember. We're like several weeks later at yeah. this point from the initial recording. Um, we've recorded other episodes <laughs> since this. So episodes four, five, and six of season three recorded in the books. And we're I feel going like, back to episode three. I feel like this is one of those things where I'm going to have to like occupy a similar spot to you, John, where I like don't spoil things. Yeah. Except that I have no idea what's a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> it's really a test of your Americans acumen and memory. And you yeah. know what? I would fail on the memory part if yeah. I were in your shoes. So we'll try to shout out Amy and Emily points where they are come up and where we remember them. But otherwise it's going to be a, a normal ish episode from Danielle and I. Here we go. All right. So we've got Season 3, Episode 3, Open House, directed by Thomas Schlama and written by Stuart Zeikerman. And Danielle, what is our IMDb summary for Open House? Danger mounts for Elizabeth and Philip as they get closer to the inner circle of the CIA Afghan group. Stan monitors Zinjeda. Agent Adderholt challenges Agent God on a crucial operation. It sounded like instead of danger mounts... You said Danger Mouse, and I would be interested in a universe in which Danger Mouse traveled back in time in Quantum Mania to go visit the Americans. I feel angry that you referenced Quantum Mania there, and I, I don't I know, know what Danger Mouse is. Okay, fine. Moving on. Um, I, I also made a Prince reference in episode six, which we just recorded. Did you catch that? No, not at all. Okay, great. I mean, that's going to be my new goal moving forward. All right. Oh. So... Instead of trying to find a through line through what is happening here in Open House, I think the point is to kind of talk as we had in true honoring the spirit of the discussion with Emily, and yeah. kind of talk through some highlights from the main part of the episode. And of yeah. course, there's plenty to come in the segments. Yes. 
Yes, I think that that's right. All right. I think there's nowhere to start other than the Philip and Elizabeth series of missions, the open house, the car, multiple car escapes, the secret basement dentistry. Where where among this uh, array of Soviet KGB operational (sighs) successes shall we begin? I mean, I feel like we have to start with the basement dentistry. Even That's that- what I hoped you were going to say, Danielle. <laughs> so I told John this before, but I was looking at the Collider recap and like the tagline of that, of that recap is including an excruciating lesson in Soviet dentistry. John, did you have other ways you were thinking about the right. dentistry in the basement? Yeah, let's, let's just get this on the table or <laughs> off the table. I don't know what the right metaphor is here. Off the table. Uh, <laughs> So there was a, a robust debate uh, on the earlier version of the last episode of the Not Quite Great Books podcast as to whether the basement dentistry is hot between right. Philip and Elizabeth. Myself and Emily maintained the correct position that <laughs> this is an extremely sexually charged encounter between Philip and Elizabeth when Philip extracts two of her teeth because he gets the wrong one the first time, that the bearing down, the Elizabeth grabbing him, that the intense looks in their eyes is just full of electricity and charge. And shockingly, producer Amy ended up on the more prudish side of this debate. Usually as she is wants to proclaim captain of team Horney said that no illicit basement basement dentistry was not hot. I think like you're making a mistake by like reading the distaste of this scene as prudish. Like I, my, I'm happy to own the, like, I occupy the prudish spot on this podcast all the time, whether in relation to you, producer Amy or anybody else, quite frankly, but my issue with this, and I think this is where Amy and I like came together is like, this is not about like, oh, like are Philip and Elizabeth sexually charged? It's like an inability to get past the like teeth dentistry, like, of it all, like that is just like not a sexy area for me. Look, I a thousand percent agree with you. I have like a fear of going to the dentist. Like I will be nervous for like a week straight before a dentist appointment. And yet I was able to transcend my own limitations to engage with all of the levels on which this scene was operating. I mean, the fact that you can't grant that there are multiple ways to engage this scene is, like, really a failure of your own (laughs) (laughs) I think you're right about that, but sometimes, like, the horniness just triumphs, and this is a horny scene between Philip and Elizabeth. I would agree with you as if there wasn't any of the, like, tooth-pulling part of it. Look, we haven't seen Philip and Elizabeth engage in any kinky sex, but like this raises the question. I gotta say it. That's one of the directions that the lost uh, Danielle also had to leave the lost audio <laughs> due to a time conflict earlier. We did d- delve into that in more depth in the lost. Uh, the fact that I didn't like it, or the fact that because no. I can see that happening on that episode too. <laughs> I think there might have been a bit of that as well. Yeah, of course there was. You guys are assholes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think one thing we agree on. Danielle, mm-hmm. maybe this is where we can uh, turn turn to a little bit kind of closer analysis of the episode. Whether it's hot, there is this like extreme intimacy and care that's Absolutely. expressed in this scene. 
Absolutely. I fully agree on that. And I think like that that is my way to, to like read the charge is like the intimacy of it. And there's something I like, while I can't get over the hump of like, Oh, this is sexy. Um, to the, the closeness, the like level of trust that Elizabeth has to have that like one swig of whiskey or is not helping anybody here. Like the intimacy is like, is incredibly heightened in this scene. Yeah. They're both acting the scene incredibly effectively and like, it's mostly wordless. So this Elizabeth comes home finally, like, got out of there. Right. It's just some extent, some wonderful spy work that we want to discuss gets home. Philip's been like up all night, racked anxious. There's some patriotic bullshit commercial playing in the background, um, right before Elizabeth comes home. And like the, as full of tension as the two of them are over what to do with Paige, as full as tension as they are, as full of tension as they are about Gabriel and Gabriel's relationship to each of them and to Paige and all of this, like the connection that they share entirely or almost entirely wordlessly when Elizabeth arrives home, they embrace, they kiss, Elizabeth winces in pain. Right. And there's like no dialogue. It's just like, all right, right. we're going to go take care of this. Because we did get earlier in the episode, at our Holt and Stan talking about how, yeah, they've gotten, you know, hundreds of calls or whatever from dentists. All yeah. The but, area. And like Philip and Elizabeth know, or like at least Elizabeth knows, but I think both of them know that like they can't go, she can't get this treated because like it will be a clear, it will be like exactly the thing that they're looking for. And also the thing that I found interesting about this, especially with like Adderholt is, is like, I think they have, dentists in like Buffalo calling them, right? Like yeah. it's, mm-hmm. it's like the, the radius is expansive. So there's really no other option. And I think like the fact that you called out the kiss, which is sort of like the lead into all of this, yeah. I think again, like that, like it's like intimacy at the beginning and at the end, right? Like it's mm-hmm. the whole thing is shrouded in, in intimacy. Yeah. I mean, Philip's like extraction of the teeth is like an act of love for Elizabeth or, you know, on yeah. some creepy level. And like, just an incredibly intense scene. The sound work, the sound design in this up in this scene is terrifying. Like both the actual sounds of the extraction and everything that's happening in there, but then also like a slightly different score to this scene than in most of the Americans. Like it's a little more skittery, a little more like skipping around a little creepier, like, in its, you know, composition than most of the more kind of classical structures of the American score. Do we want to maybe talk about like the, the spy craft lead up to like how we get here? Please. So Daniel, how did you feel about them visiting this open house of CIA agent, SCA Afghan group member, Passwell, Ted Passwell? I felt like it was risky. I yes. felt like it, like, but I also, and we could talk about this a little bit in the 80s, there's something like so... Today, this couldn't have happened, right? Because you've got like videos of the people coming to your house. Like you have security... You have a stuff. fucking ring camera surreptitiously giving footage to the cops. <laughs> surreptitiously, not surreptitiously, right? Yeah. Like just like flat out, flat out doing it. Especially if you're like in the CIA, you have multiple like forms of surveillance set up. So like there was just something like, so 
like sloppy and shoddy about the the setup that like enables Elizabeth and Philip to just pop on in. Um, what about you? What did you think? I would agree with that. And I would also say that it's, there's some irony in Philip and Elizabeth using this like capitalist tradition of the realty <laughs> open house yeah. to get in there and do the spy work. And I mean, I think Amy's main beef was Philip is just like, Oh, I'm going to go check out the attic. <laughs> the attic. I'm supervised <laughs> upstairs. And she's like, no one gets to go in any attic anywhere ever, much less rando stranger during an open house. Well, and like, again, not just a random open house, right? Like an open house of a CIA agent. And then Philip is just like bopping around in the office and the guy catches him uh-huh. and is not suspicious. It's just like, Oh yeah, <laughs> divorce sucks or whatever. He's yeah. like, don't get just, divorced. Yeah. Right? It's like, okay. Like if I was a C, first of all, this is why I could never be a CIA agent because I would just be, I'm already suspicious of everyone. I would be so suspicious of any single person in my house. And it's like, it's just such a wild, wild thing. It is. And I mean, and Philip, like to his credit, I guess is effective at portraying the like, you know, fussing around like person checking the baseboards or the heat or whatever it is he says that he's checking out in like the closet of the office. But I think what what does explain some of these like potentially weird yeah. you know, issues is the desperation in general that Paswell is feeling, yes. right? Like getting divorced, he clearly does not want to get divorced. And also that they're unable to sell this house, right? Like we find out that the price yeah. has already been, had to be reduced once, or maybe it was twice, I don't even remember, um, at this point. And so like that desperation apparently is so deep that he fails his like CIA instincts or CIA training. Yeah, I'm, I guess, like, just in terms of believability and storyline, like, storyline and plot movement, that makes a lot of sense. But, like, believability, just, like, that, I think even in the 80s, like, that seems silly. But we get the great scene between uh, Philip and Paswell, right? Yeah, Ted Paswell. Um, In the office. And then it also then leads to, like, these other spycraft scenes. I have one more note on the interaction between Philip and Paswell in there. And that is that, and this is like very real nostalgia for the 2020s. (laughs) It is that Paswell is like, turn the office into a den. If you have an office at home, you're always working. Like strong wages for housework, Kathy Weeks, like, (laughs) you know, we're always working neoliberalism from the CIA agent. So I guess you got to hand it to him. Like revolution now? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what he's saying? Maybe. 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 I'm, that's definitely, well, only if it's the CIA overthrowing popularly elected leftists uh, elsewhere in the world. The only kind of revolution is possible, probably. Uh, <laughs> but okay. You were trying to move us along to talk about what happens after the open house. So let us do that. Yeah, so why don't you give us a sense of what happens after the <laughs> <laughs> Gee, I wonder why Danielle is asking me to do that. Okay, so Philip has planted the, a bug in right. the giant-ass, chunky mobile phone, car phone 
of Passwell, the CIA agent. And they're like, oh, we installed this thing. Let's, you know, drive around. Let's stay in range. Let's see, make sure it's working. See if we can initially find out the information. And after doing this for a while, they realize they are being tailed by the CIA people who are on Passwell. So even if Passwell has failed his instincts, the CIA has like their counter surveillance or whatever set up. Um, And they catch and they are on the tail of Philip and Elizabeth for what seems to be literally hours. Yeah. I guess they're always keeping every car full tank 100% of the time before any mission. So, like, carefulness there, I suppose. Or, like, another way to think about it is to, like, read a little bit later into the episode into this, right? Where they're, like, talking to each other and, like, different uh, cars are doing the following. And Philip asks Elizabeth, like, is it the same car? And she's not sure. And so I can envision a scenario where, like, the car has switched out a couple of times to do something like fill up the gas and yeah. like oh, i'm thinking about philip and elizabeth's car oh i used to be able to drive my old jeep which was an 89 so like a little bit not like exactly the time period I used to be able to drive my jeep to cornell like on less than a tank of gas so i would assume that their car probably has like five hours worth of gas in it okay I think they're gone for more than five hours. But regardless, we're getting lost in spy details. I mean, but like Elizabeth and Philip have it unlocked. So they're being surveilled and they have to formulate a plan. They're willing to be like, okay, let's trust Elizabeth's instincts that this is indeed a car that's been on them before, that they are indeed being followed. And we get Philip just like at a corner, at a stop sign, just like barrel rolling the fuck out of the car. Stop, drop, and roll, baby. Stop, as Amy or Emily, yeah, I don't remember if I'm out. The, the originators of stop, drop, up is Philip Jennings circa winter 1982. Into it. <laughs> Into it. So he gets away and goes to a payphone, calls Joan, the new call center operator for the KGB Illegals yep. Network and all of their various schemes. Some incredible code work here. Incredible. On- the I mean the whole like spycraft of Elizabeth getting away is just like it's cool. Like this is one of the like I... pure plot spy things that one can enjoy in a spy show. Yeah, this was amazing. I think like the pieces of this. So yeah, the spycraft is amazing. The other piece of it that I want to highlight is that so while like this is happening and so Philip leaves the car, he's gone and and this like the Elizabeth stuff unfolds over like now it's dark out. It like takes some time and Philip is just like home waiting and worrying and we sort yes. of see the worry on his person. And then he uses the opportunity to like talk to Paige. Like, uh-huh. so he seizes this opportunity to like talk to Paige in the absence of Elizabeth, which sure I does. just think is so striking to like at once be worried about like Elizabeth's life and fate because this is really the first like screw up or like like misstep that they've had in this way in a while. Yes and no, right? Like, I mean, Elizabeth almost gets caught and gets in that fight in the first episode of the season. But I... her getting shot in the car previous seasons, so... But this... Those 
instances felt really high stakes yeah. and this felt like mm, they I were saying that like they were sloppy at a bunch of different moments and then were punished for their sloppiness got it yep that makes sense as opposed to like making like big risk big reward uh-huh. moves mm-hmm. which yeah, no, I see the, you're the saying. other like the other fuck ups feel a little bit more like that right like why did they need to like tail t- pass well that day right as opposed to like letting well, things settle after planting the bug. Right. Or like, yeah. Or like thinking it through a little bit more. There's like some impulse there. But anyway, mm-hmm. in the midst of all of this, Philip is like, so Paige, I don't often get to chat with you without your mom around. <laughs> was like, is this really happening? <laughs> so I feel like yeah. this is like, that's the, it's sort of on the one hand, you have all of this like heightened tension stuff. And yet like the domestic tension that is centered around Paige is still like ever present, right? Right. Because we have, I mean, this is something we talked about more at length with Emily and Amy about like childhood and adulthood and who is acting like an adult and a child who is feeling right. like an adult and a child. And we actually get Paige in this moment telling Philip to stop worrying about her so much. Right. So even as Philip is trying to do his like classic season three battle between Philip and Elizabeth, who's yeah. going to manipulate Paige more effectively uh, situation, Paige like is pushing back at it at various points throughout the season. This question, and I think we like we dug into this a lot with Emily and Amy, but like worth bringing up here, like this question of childhood versus adulthood and like this idea of choice, which is something that Gabriel brings up over and Mm -hmm. over again. Mm -hmm. And like, it's something that comes up in this discussion, like at least implicitly, if not explicitly between Philip and Paige, like this question of choice is like, is there. And I think is connected to that, uh, this sort of debate between childhood and adulthood. Yeah. So there's this really, confrontational scene between Philip and Elizabeth um, after the initial conversation with Gabriel and Philip and Elizabeth talk about, first of all, in like classic family suppression, repression style, Mm -hmm. like what gift are we going to get Paige for her birthday? Like they argue about that, which like quickly turns, turns into a like, Elizabeth asking Philip, what is with you? And them arguing while Elizabeth is just like buck ass naked, like after a bath or a shower or something, like with her back turned to Philip in the bedroom. Um, It's just an interesting choice to like have the argument play out while she is literally naked and like has, you know, no shield up right to against Philip and, you know, figuratively or literally here. Or that that is exactly her shield, right? Which is, or like, uh-huh. distract him with my body. Which, like, ultimately doesn't really work, right? Because, like, if that's how... If that's one way to read the scene, Philip rejects it. He's just, like, he's in on this on this debate. That's where mm-hmm. he is. He's not interested in her body. He's not interested in anything else. He's, he's too busy reading Time Magazine, A... He, like, <laughs> making fun of Hans and Elizabeth for the fact that Hans is hot for Elizabeth. Like, you know, bet he bet he liked what he saw. I think something to that effect that he says. Yeah, yeah. And C, just, like, over it after the conversation with Gabriel. Which, like, from Philip's point of view, is understandable. I, like, I don't know. That's sort of where I am on this, where the sort of heightening tension around Paige and, like, and the, like... 
as a kind of dividing point between Philip and Elizabeth. Like if I were Philip, I would also be over it. Like he has made his position clear. It is also clear that Elizabeth does not respect that position. And, and like, how do we go forward from here? Right. And as you pointed out earlier, this is indeed a debate about like what choice substantively means and who doesn't, doesn't have choice, which is centered or focused on page, but is seemingly a bigger issue for Philip and maybe also for Elizabeth over what choices did they have in their lives versus not having in their own lives, including like, was it actually a choice that they actively made to have a child, to have Paige in the first place? And like Gabriel has this very, I don't know, like to be incredibly obnoxious about it, but when has that ever stopped me? Like <laughs> Dost- like Dostoevskian or Sartrean, like, you know, everybody always has a choice. Paige will have a choice. There's always a choice, which is not a necessarily like simple. I don't think Paige can actually say no, but it seems to be some sort of like deeper existential uh, like choice that Gabriel proclaims Paige is going to have. I'm laughing because it's a real like, you have a choice if someone has a gun pointed at your head, like moment in Hobbes, right? It's like, yeah, I guess you could say no, but like, then you'll die. And I like, are we reading the choice to die as a real choice? Like that doesn't seem fair, which seems to be the logic that Gabriel sort of operating yeah. with. Thus, can we go on political? Can we go down to the cave real quickly Let's in the it. middle? So, so the Hobbes part is an interesting thing because that's the one place where he says you actually do get to disobey the sovereign and it's legitimate is when the sovereign tries to take away your life, right? Right, but in Elements of Law and in Dekiwe, the way that he characterizes, so like the way that he characterizes freedom is about like, it doesn't matter what the conditions are. Yeah. It's about making the choice. And yeah. But like by the time we get to Leviathan, the choice actually, like the conditions do impact whether or not you're free, right? So there is, there's a little bit of like Hobbes going back on himself, which I appreciate. Uh, Hob, we, we, did you we, think we were going to get to Kiway in this episode? You did. <laughs> I always, I, I'm never surprised when it happens. And I think that the, you know, all due respect to Amy and to Emily, but I think the real Patreon bonus that will really get the lots of dollars streaming in yeah. is like a deep dive on to Kiway. Bring me, bring me that Spotify money. Bring Look, it's, it's not, it's, it's not <laughs> Bill like, Simmons, call, call us Bill Simmons. Pass. You can take that call. Um, but it's not, it's not like I wrote a whole dissertation chapter about Hobbes and like read all the parts of Leviathan, not to and like, but also other parts of Hobbes that like no one else reads. Listen, you know that I had one specific committee member who was like, what about Julie? What about Dekiwe? What about elements of law? Like, what about the essay on human understanding? It's like, oh my God, could we, like, these are already, there are, there are accepted texts. Let's just read those texts, like, and move the fuck on. All right. Yeah. We gotta, we gotta keep, we gotta get out of Hobbes. We gotta get out of Hobbes. Okay. We gotta get out of Hobbes. <laughs> it's so hard. Um, you can't escape the Leviathan in so many ways. We probably should finish rounding out this plot detail that happens with Philip and Elizabeth and how Elizabeth does get away to engage in some hot right. basement dentistry with Philip. And that is that 
thanks to the call that Philip placed before right. or after he has this, like, I'm going to force a conversation on page right now. He gets the help that Elizabeth needs to Elizabeth. Somebody throws Elizabeth wrapped in a blanket, uh, like car phone or walkie talkie or something who walks her through what turns to make, what intersections to make, where to stop. Someone sidles up next to the FBI car to, or the CIA car to jam their signal. Right. And then someone else rams into that uh, CIA car, enabling Elizabeth to get away into another car. And she eventually makes her way back for said dentistry session. It's honestly phenomenal spycraft and like phenomenal maneuvering and just like a pretty brilliant like way to get out of like a pretty shitty situation. Absolutely. And so Emily brought up the point when we recorded the last episode about how this conflict between the CIA and the FBI is actually quite telling um, about the different dynamics, right? Because mm. the CIA has been wanting to just surveil the you know, person or people they've been trailing until they stop somewhere for good and like to get right. more information. And Aderholt, Stan, and eventually Gad gets convinced are like, no, let's actually stop and intercept them. How many times yeah. do we have the chance to like capture one of these people and interrogate them? Right. So there's a little bit of a, I wouldn't necessarily call it power play, but there's a struggle over like what, what we should be doing or how we should handle this. Yeah. And, you know, we had a good conversation that I don't think Danielle and I are going to try to replicate about the show's perspective on like institutional and bureaucratic logics and rationalities compared to its depiction of individual action vis-a-vis -vis those bureaucracies. But just know that we thought about it, and I'm sure we'll come back to it at a different I'm point. I'm sure at some point. We'll have, to have, we'll have Emily and Amy back on to talk about that point in particular. I mean, also, like, structure agency is, like, all over this. Yeah, so exactly. It won't be all hard right. to get back to. Don't worry. So we've, we've got some choices going on in this episode. We have some childhood, adulthood dynamics going on in this episode, which, of course, means we have Oleg daddy issues to deal with oh, daddy issues we love <laughs> we don't but we do for we Oleg. love watching oleg like figure out his daddy issues that's what we love absolutely so we have arkady coming to oleg in this episode and arkady says oleg you're being recalled to moscow hinting that oleg's dad had something to do with this in the aftermath of the nina situation but Arkady says, I always give my agents the autonomy, the choice to make. And so Oyek like actually gets a choice in a much deeper and fuller way than Paige gets yeah. about his at least near-term future. So Arkady is like, be careful. Your dad's close to Andropov, the new uh, chairman of the, in the Soviet Union. Um, and if you want to stay, you can stay. It's ultimately up to you. And of mm -hmm. course, for both character and emotional reasons, but also because Oyeg is a great character in the show and Kosteronin is a good actor and you want to keep him as part of the mix in, in right. the DC area. Oyeg ultimately decides to go against his dad and stay. Which I feel great about. And also like, like you said, is sort of the, the counter to Paige who ultimately we don't really think has a choice. Oyeg maybe on first blush, it looks like he doesn't have a choice because, like, you can't, like, bite the hand that feeds you. But he's like, actually, I'm going to stick around here. Like, this, I feel, I, listen, 
Oleg likes his American cigarettes and he likes his hockey games and he like loves yeah. capitalism. So just like let him be. <laughs> let him be. Yes, I use, says Oleg. I'm staying. Uh, and, you know, he says, we'll see about my father. Um, so we get also like this interesting line from him that he's, you know, he says that his father has been telling him to grow up his entire life. And so for Oleg, defying his father and staying in the residentura in the U.S. is the growing up in yeah. his mind that his father has been demanding of him. And, like, not surprising that, like, what Oleg thinks is growing up is, like, not what fits into his father's dis- understanding of what growing up entails, right? Because yeah. I'm sure, like, if we were to take the position of Oleg's father, it would be, like, growing up is, like, coming home and, and doing the thing that you're supposed to do. And Oleg's like, no, this is the thing I want to do. So, Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, I mean, in a very, very different set of circumstances, pages, you know, active rebellion of joining the church and doing all that is her way to like become a young adult by standing up to and defying her parents. Listen, Oleg has capitalism and Paige has Christianity and many a thinker have compared the two and are probably right. So I'll take it. Shouts to Bill Connolly. I was going to say shouts to Ann Norton, which feels like wild coming out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right. So any more thoughts on Oleg? No, I feel like we've, we've uh, captured his essence in this episode. Quite All right. Well. One last thing here in the main discussion then is there's this scene after they've lost Philip and Elizabeth where Adderhold wants to talk to Stan, have some real talk about like, so Adderhold, we find out, did catch somebody in Directorate S at his previous posting. Mm-hmm. And so they talk briefly about that before Adderhold really wants to know how Stan like managed to embed himself with white supremacists in like Missouri, Arkansas for several years. And Amy had an interesting take on this when we recorded the episode, that it's a little bit like a black man in the FBI sussing out, like how did my extremely blonde, extremely white new colleague yeah. make it with the white supremacists for a right. long time? <laughs> Oh, which I like, I appreciate that take because it's like, oh yeah, that doesn't seem like that. It's like not that much of a challenge or that much of a, of a stretch. And I like want to see how like Stan's racism or like uh, black men in the FBI, like my colleagues racism, like actually like comes to fruition. Exactly. And so there's also the, you know, this like attempt at bonding in another way where he's like, well, let's go, you know, get a beer and have some war stories. And Stan says, you know, I'm good for the beer, not as much interested in the war stories or something to that effect. So there, there is this, you know, dynamic between Stan and Adderholt that's developing, like to what extent are they going to be friends? To what extent are they going to be like good colleagues and collaborators and the shitty things the FBI usually is doing and up to, and to what extent are they going to kind of butt heads or like will Stan's racism or his whiteness become an obstacle? Yeah, all feels like open questions, you know, yeah. and and I'm interested to see, like, obviously, I think we meet Stan in the in the first season when he's like pretty newly back from uh from his exactly. like exactly yeah, Just and, literally moving into the house in Falls Church, Virginia. Right. So, like, we sort of see the arc of his relationship with Amador. So, we see the, like, development of the arc of the relationship with Amador. It takes him a little bit to, like, warm up to him. And then, ultimately, he's, like, 
very loyal, right? And like really like pissed off when he dies and all of that. And goes out to assassinate Vlad, a murder Vlad in in response. Right. Like does all of these things that seem to be at least in that moment out of character for him. And I think we can revisit that later. Correct. But so it's interesting to me for us to like now be watching Stan and Adderholt and like seeing where this relationship goes and like how this develops and like do the same kinds of bonds like develop there. And and what's the, I, I it felt like with, with Amador, like part of what heightened the relationship with him was like, the the push to sleep with Nina, uh-huh. right? And so I wonder, like, how like sexuality infuses its way into any sort of relationship with Adderholt, if it does at all. Absolutely. That's with that. Let's head to the dossier. I think we have some kind of natural segues here. So for, yeah. let's kind of kick off the dossier with a question for you. Yeah, go for it. So. As a result of this conversation between Stan and Adderholt, Stan tells Adderholt that, like, the way I convinced them is I just kept telling them what they wanted to hear over and over again. Yeah. Cut to Stan watching Zenyatta being interviewed yeah. by who else but Charles Duluth, our favorite conservative <laughs> commentator slash KGB uh, asset. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Stan is on set and watching the feed and like his, his gears are turning. So Danielle, are you are up. like Stan feeling sus about Zenyatta? Yes, uh, 1 million percent feeling sus about Zanetta. There's like something a little too easy about it. And I know like she rolled in in the box and like with a, you know, with an oxygen tank, but like, I don't know. They just sort of like welcomed her with open arms and gave her some Snickers bars. And that was that. Like, Mil- Milky, Milky Way. Sorry. Danielle. <laughs> um, would, you, would you rather, if I like, was like, Danielle, I got us some candy bars. Here's a Snickers and here's a Milky Way. Which one are you going Next time we're in Troy, like we're, 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 we're getting another tattoo and, you know, I don't, need some sugar to sustain us. When I was younger, I was a big Milky Way fan, but now I'm a bigger Snickers fan. However, I would generally go for the Snickers, except if it was a Milky Way dark, in which case I prefer Milky Way dark. This is, this is a great choice. I'll, I'll keep this in mind. But my preferred chocolate candy bar is a, either a Kit Kat or a dark Kit Kat. Fair enough. Kit Kats are great. I, I, the wafers I can't have. There's a gluten right. situation that's happening. So, but like the caramel, it's like it's like too much. So the other one I like is a Three Musketeers bar. Mm, I'll have to pass on the Three Musketeers. That was like a childhood love, but like no, thank you. I don't that. know if I could like eat an entire one, but that's always the like when someone brings like a bag of the squares for like Halloween. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. I like the square of the Three Musketeers, yeah. like a perfect little pillowy bite. Perfect. I mean, I don't think we had candy talk when me and Emily were on, so you know, there's, no, we were it's too not busy. A loss. We were too busy ragging on my distaste of the dentistry scene <laughs> and Amy's. To be fair, okay. What else? What else was in the dossier this week, Danielle? So, also in the dossier, we get this, like, weird exchange between Adderholt and Martha, this, like, weird, like, flirting, and I just feel like Martha is back, but not for long, and I think this season we're just gonna see, like, Martha putting nails in her own coffin, and, like, flirting with someone else where she's gonna have to reveal that she's married and she's not allowed to, like, Martha will die. 
I mean, I cannot comment in any form on this other than that whether you are correct or not, the leap from Martha flirting with Adderhold <laughs> leads Adderhold to investigate leads to her getting discovered to her getting murdered is second in dossier <laughs> lore only to Philip is going down on Martha. She pulls the two payoff and that is Martha's demise <laughs> that you and me and John Keller came up with. So honestly, like <laughs> I, either way would be great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Both satisfying pun intended uh, ways that Martha could get revealed. Here are some conspiracy theories for the dossier. Um, First of all, the Zinjeda stuff like made me think, I think that there is a secret, secret agent, but I don't think it's Zinjeda. Like I don't, I think like there's someone that we don't know is working for the KGB, but we're like in the CIA or in the FBI, but we don't know who it is yet. Um, It has not been revealed. So I think like there's something happening there, but Zinjeda is like there to throw us off the scent. Wonderful. That's one. The second is like, I don't know. I feel like Hans is like Chekhov's bad spy. Like we keep asking, like, is Stan even good at his job? But like, I don't know. There's something about Hans is like, I love Elizabeth and I'm clumsy and like hot and South African that feels like he's something's going to go wrong there. So Danielle, what a setup as we go into gloss, because I Ah. think the first gloss item is indeed about Hans. And I think an easy consensus, simple question to start off this Hans discussion. Hans is hot, correct? Yeah, I think so. Okay. But, like, uh, that's not, like, a fair question to ask me because, like, I like a nerdy PhD student as a former nerdy PhD student. Like, who's, who's among us? I mean, like, yes, yes, obviously Hans is hot. Like, he has he's, like, very nerdy, cute, hot, and also, like, I'm into the accent. And he's, like, white South African anti-apartheid, so his politics are pretty good. Yeah, and he has that, like, floppy hair. Like, yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, <laughs> John rolled his eyes. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> no, I'm thinking about another conversation I had that like, we can have off air um, <laughs> in that regard. Okay. But, okay, so we have, have canonically established that Hans is hot. Hans is hot. So, Hans, there's a lot to talk about with Hans here. I, w- I want to lay out a theory for you, Danielle. Okay. Um, lay out away. Okay. In the previous season, Lucia, we read as, like, surrogate daughter to Elizabeth, right? Yeah. Paige wasn't developed as a spy. They didn't even know about this, like, second generation plan with the illegals. So that's who that is. Now they do know about this plan. There's conflict over Paige. So now Elizabeth gets a surrogate son in the form of Hans, but who has the hots for her, thus edipalizing the whole dynamic. So we not only have surrogate spy children, we have edipalized surrogate spy children. Yeah, I mean, I'm into this. You know I'm into any theory that involves Oedipus. Obviously. (laughs) It's not like that's going to come up again in the episode that's several weeks from now that we literally just recorded. One million. I'm pretty sure it's come up in every episode. This season. <laughs> and you know, what? if if it if it wasn't officially there, it was in the subtext. Oh, always, always, already. Yeah. All right. One more Hans note. Um, yeah. This is a. We're just gonna say Emily did a good job of this, and yes, Danielle and I are not going to go into this step. No. <laughs> so Hans, PhD student, apparently in economics or like rat choicey political science or something boring part of him <laughs> yes but because it's cover for a spy i'll, I'll allow it 
Um, cause okay. he's hot. So he's like into some sort of teaching the undergrads and his like recitation sections about the Hicks-Slutsky debate, which is like a debate within economics, I think micro-econ, about marginal demand. Emily okay. went on this beautiful uh, like explication of all of this that um, is actually worthy of the Patreon that doesn't exist. Maybe we'll make it exist just for Emily's Hicks and Slutsky rant. Look, I mean, can the Patreon just be Amy and Emily make Patreon content? I mean, they probably would. <laughs> yeah, so we'll shout out Emily. I'm not even going to try to wade into that um, because I don't understand economics. Um, but it was tremendous. And we were very grateful that she had done that deep dive and we didn't have to. Yes, exactly. And then we lost it to the evils of bad Wi-Fi. Oh. All right. Next up in gloss, we have Martha, not content with a no on kids from Sex God Clark. Um, oh no God. sex since episode one, where they're having sex via the Kama Sutra positions. And that's the only Martha in season three, episode one. But here, uh, she still wants a kid and she has hatched a new plan, Danielle. Oh my God, Martha. I just, this is another nail in your coffin. <laughs> Martha thinks they should have foster kids. It's just like, Martha, take the hint. If he doesn't let you tell your friends about him and he makes you keep him a secret and he won't have kids with you, he's not your husband. He's a KGB spy. <laughs> <laughs> a, a good rule of thumb. So any, excuse me, good heuristic. Uh, as for any listeners out there, if you find yourself in that situation, you've learned from us to be very, very skeptical about what's happening. Even though we've recorded other episodes, well, I'll say this in the context of like Danielle, who had just seen episode three, I was like, this is not going to go anywhere good or anywhere that like promotes living. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we've got just all sorts of bad signs from Martha ahead from Gloss. Now, Danielle, um, what might Paige be up to in this episode other than blowing off Philip? Paige is here like finding Henry's quote, cleaning Henry's room. I've never cleaned a sibling's room in my life. Um, She finds Henry's picture of Sandy Beeman. In a bikini. Henry loses his mind. Uh (laughs) It's honestly phenomenal. It's such a great, like, big big sister, little brother interaction. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, You do a great line read of Holly Taylor as Paige. (laughs) Did I? I uh, what are you in love with, Mrs. Beeman? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and and, and Henry insists that it's not even his. It's oh, not even his. It just picture. ended up. It just ended Who's, up in his bedroom. Whose picture is in your bed sheets, Henry? <laughs> <laughs> wild, wild. I mean, Page should learn her lesson that she shouldn't act out the secret spy lessons that she's getting from her parents on her brother. And, you know, doesn't stop her speaking of children and parents. I don't even know what to do with that, (laughs) that, uh, um, transition, but I will take us to the, here's something that made me so angry in this episode. All of us, all four of us were angry. The episode opens with Philip and Gabriel playing Scrabble 
And Gabriel puts down the word Stygian, Stygian. I believe it's Stygian. Um, and we check this and it's like in the Scrabble dictionary, but Gabriel is using the term like as a reference to the river Styx, not as like a, like general adjective. And like in reference to the river Styx, it is a proper, like it's a proper noun turned into an adjective and therefore should not be allowed in Scrabble. I fully agree with you. <sighs> I took a lot to get out, but what, I, a, a question, a Hanley question for you. What are the Hanley house Scrabble rules around challenges? We can't, we don't play Scrabble in the Hanley house because okay. we would kill each other. <laughs> okay. Could you and I play Scrabble? I mean, for the Patreon. Would it end up like <laughs> our MCU episodes? Maybe. Great, great content. <laughs> an argument over Horkheimer? I mean, what are we talking about here? Uh, the demise of our friendship? Like... <laughs> no, uh, I actually got Scrabble for... We always get a game for Christmas, so I actually got Scrabble for Christmas. I have it over in my apartment, and I'm like, I will never play this with anyone, but except that I'm going to New York for Shabbat this weekend and I will likely bring it to play with my friend Yehuda. <laughs> Wonderful. I feel like we played games against one another. We played some Flux. We played some Guillotine when you visited Plattsburgh. It's, I understand that Scrabble is a much more ruthless endeavor. Yeah, it's not the inability to play games. Like, we play Settlers and, like, Pandemic in my at home all the time. Um, it is the like competitiveness. Now settlers also like gets us in a competitive mode, but like my sister, Caitlin is obsessed with monopoly. And at some point I just had to stop playing it. I was like, no, this is, this is a like terrible, like trigger for my insanely (laughs) competitive like side. Scrabble is the same way. McMahon's are not so secretly extremely competitive at games. I, but you're also, I suspect, I know that you're good at games, so I suspect your whole family is good at games. And the problem is that my whole family is not, it's not that they're good or bad at games, but like everyone's a sore loser. (laughs) (laughs) Myself included. You know what the, you know who that's also a problem for? The McMahons, (laughs) myself included. Maybe that's the patron. It's the McMahons versus the Hamleys. Oh, God. That's going to be... That's not going to work. <laughs> oh, my God. Let's keep moving. Let's talk about Philip's disguise and Pastor Tim. Oh, my gosh. I love that I caught this. I'm just going to shout yeah. myself out here. <laughs> that Philip as guy at the open house early in the episode, like, eerily looks like Pastor Tim with the feathery... Not feathery, like, big blonde wig that Philip is wearing. Which is amazing because we just recorded season three, episode six, where I started off with, I feel like Pastor Tim is Philip in blonde wig cosplay. <laughs> it's true. It's true. That's yeah, that was a original unconnected point. Um, yeah. I mean, put, put a Bible in his hands and he's Pastor Tim. Not interested. Um, <laughs> okay, Danielle, you get introduced mostly by voice. There's like a second and a half on yeah. screen of Kimberly. Um, We probably shouldn't talk too much here because you've seen through episode six at this point. Right. Um, But just like, if you can transport yourself back to the time, 
Any thoughts on Kimberly's various uh, brags slash propositions over audio surveillance? I mean, mostly I was not thinking about her brags or propositions, but just like how phenomenal her hair is. So like that was really my takeaway. And I, like, you know, in the next few episodes, you'll hear me think and talk way more about Kimberly. Absolutely. So yeah, Kimberly, ultimately, uh, because she needs hot sex and she's basically an adult and has had a boyfriend who's a poli sci major, uh, uh, she thinks she is ready to have sex with the uh, 45-year-old man that she babysits for, Ted Baswell. Annoying. <laughs> yes. Okay, so one debate that was had on the last episode is she bragging or like self-negging that she dated and banged a poli-sci major? I think she thinks about it as bragging, but we can think about it as uh, self-negging. <laughs> Great. I think we had a both-and-like response in the last yeah, episode perfect. as well. So Daniel, I think, had had to go by that point yeah. when that conversation was had. All right. Shall we head to the bar of nostalgia? Let's go. Still don't know what that means if you are Danielle Hanley. uh, Still don't know. Hopefully somebody will put me out of my misery. (laughs) The first one is Brezhnev on Time Magazine, which you already mentioned, which is just like solid. Yeah, solid (laughs) dating of the episode. Um, We'll talk in a future episode. We have a guest for, I believe it's episode five, about the show's use of like historical references a bit. So that was nice. Yeah. And we get the kind of mirrored scene to that of the portrait swap in the embassy. So the portrait of Brezhnev taken down, the portrait of Andropov being put up. I've so the next thing we've got here is maps and like everything about the car chase, which felt like very lo-fi, which was awesome and like very eighties, but there's something about like having a map and like drawing circles on or like triangulating on like a physical paper map, which just like screams eighties and like is something I have nostalgia for, even though I didn't drive in the eighties and my parents didn't use maps. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, like, it's not quite the same because I, you know, thinking about like, okay, printed off map quest directions is like late nineties core. Yeah. Now there's like part of me that like tries to use like the logic of like looking at a map sometimes when I'm in my car and like trying to not program directions, but I'm like looking at the virtual map that my car pulls up. Anyway. An an honorable effort by our our favorite spy, Daniel Hanley. (laughs) There you go. Also, the Star Wars curtains in Henry's room are just, like, the most, like, 80s child thing in the entire world. Absolutely. We also have in this episode Martha wearing some incredible stripes. Incredible. She wants foster kids, but she loves, loves a stripe. She does. And those two, that does, that can be a both and. We'll take it. I'll take it as a both and. Sure. Season three really, you know, we'll start a run of hitting it out of the park with some 80s music here in this episode. So we get All Out of Love by Air Supply, classic. And I want to save a lot of 80s music uh, bar nostalgia for the next two episodes after this. Awesome. I feel like the wigs in this episode are like very 80s. The wigs that Elizabeth and Philip are wearing. Exactly. like at the open house are super eighties. Very, 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 very much so. And I think this was Amy's point as well from the last episode that like the free roam, as you alluded to at the beginning of the episode, Danielle itself feels very eighties. 
Yeah, 100%. All right. Last but not least, we've got, first of all, Ted Paswell's car phone. I didn't quite realize, even for a CIA agent, that you had car phones circa late 1982. Oh, so this is, like, something that made sense to me because my dad randomly had a car phone, but, like, no one else did. And he had a car phone in a car that he only had through 1990. So, like, I knew that car phones were a thing. And it it, it was literally, like, a phone that you would have in your house, but just, like, was in the car, which is what this felt like. Boss mode by... by. <laughs> It's like unclear how Sean Hanley like had this car phone in his pickup truck, but like whatever, we'll take it. Baller, that's 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 the explanation. We love. We do. John, who is the minor character of the week? All right, so I think there's really only one choice here, uh, a different choice though than we yeah. had on the uh, last episode. We're going to go with Ted Passwell. Divorcee, selling his house in desperation, being hit on by a 15-year-old, and the person embodying all of those experiences or giving voice to all those experiences is David Furr. He does a wonderful job being just, like, down on his luck in this episode. Extremely effective down on his luck there. And I think, Danielle, we've just got one more segment left. Uh, we We are descending into the cave. Um, John, who are we taking into the cave with us? Obviously with a little help from, from our, you know, bar nostalgia for our missing guests. Absolutely. (laughs) Exactly. I don't know how it took us 59 minutes to get to that joke, but you know, we did get there in the end. So I think congrats to us. So we're going to take Marks down to the cave because Marks gets name dropped and quoted from memory by Elizabeth Jennings in this episode. So she and Hans are talking and uh, Elizabeth gives a line. I'm going to give a little bit fuller context to the line here. So this is Marx in the 1844 manuscript, sometimes known as the economic and philosophic manuscripts. Mm -hmm. Uh, So er early Marx we're talking about here. So here's Mark's quote. The say Ricardo school wishes to see only quote unquote useful things produced, but it forgets that production of too many useful things produces too large a useless population. They forget that extravagance and thrift, luxury and privation, wealth and poverty are equal, end quote. Right? So you get kind of a classic setup and Elizabeth translates this out of the kind of like political economic tinged with humanism, like Marx of the uh-huh. 1844 manuscripts and in her conversation with Hans, who let us remember is like teaching some classical ass micro econ to his right. fucking students that day. Um, in the debate between who, who is it? Hicks and Slutsky. Um, you know, so we have Elizabeth coming back, like reminding Hans, like, let's stick with like the real economist of our life, Karl Marx. And so, I mean, it's interesting to think about like, we, you know, could do this vis-a-vis Hicks and Slutsky as Emily did in the episode. And we are not going to recreate here, but like, this is, I think, uh, like not surprising that Elizabeth would have this particular, uh, like kind of Marx in her head, given, Mostly her criticism over the way that Philip likes America, but like yes. also there's a little bit of like self-recrimination here because she's admitted to Philip, like she likes the shoes. She likes a couple right, of right, things right. by living in America. 
even if that's under the broader kind of ideological um, kind of sort of beliefs that she, or set of principles that she has. So like maybe in a way she's almost like confirming her interpretation of Marx, right. About the like useless thing is useless people situation. Um, again, like the, the context in the Marx is more, a little more technical, a little more uh, kind sure. of political economic um, and a little like more nuanced than the, you know, fair point that Elizabeth raises to uh, our uh, hot South African songs. John, you've done an amazing job laying out the the marks for us. I feel like I listeners should know this that I always t- turn to John when I have like marks questions, and I just like, as always, um, enamored with the sort of ease with which you offer an interpretation of Marx, which is helpful in the context of the episode and in life in general. Can I go a little bit farther? Of course. Okay. So it's interesting that Elizabeth would have 1844 manuscripts marks like off the tip of her tongue, which probably says something about like what tiny pieces of the 1844 more humanist marks like gets taught in the Soviet Union mm-hmm. that Elizabeth mm-hmm. would have when like in general this the position on Marx in the Soviet Union, if I'm understanding correctly, is the like scientific Marx, the political economic Marx, sure. i.e. the mid to especially later yeah. Marx of Das Kapital okay. is the most relevant Marx. And then like, you know, the kind of political Marx or some aspects of the political Marx that we see in like the 1840s and Marx, like get kind of substituted in the Soviet Union by Lenin's interpretation of Marx, right? It's like, it's a little bit surprising to me, like on some level that Elizabeth would have the early more quote unquote humanistic Marx at hand, except for the fact that this particular line in her deployment of it is like a great ideological point score against the U S well, that's what I was wondering if like, if this actually like tells us something about Elizabeth where like, this is not her favorite Marx, but even in this moment, like Marx is useful, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like the, this is the most like, useful version of, of Marx for like the particular conversation mm-hmm. that they're having. And for needling capitalism, which we know Elizabeth likes to do. Elizabeth <laughs> loves Who it. doesn't? <laughs> even if she, even if she likes the shoes, she likes to needle capitalism more. Do you know what? Like. In, you know. Into it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Amy, producer Amy, um, you know, if she were here, would be like yelling in the chat about lipstick Marxism. So we should recognize. Oh that. yeah. We'll, we'll shout that out even mm-hmm. though yeah. we're not going to do it. We'll also shout out. Amy did have a theory ship for this, this a episode. Great theory ship. So she, she will fill up and Elizabeth who is Amy described or like experiencing a little more having their shit together, uh, surveillance and policing apparatus that they're facing to right. your point, Danielle, like their small fuck ups cost them dearly and almost very, right. very dearly in this episode. And thus, to get some context and critical perspective on that, Amy wanted to theory ship Alex Vitale's end of policing to Philip and Elizabeth, which makes sense to me. Oh, it totally makes sense. And like, it is exactly what they need to be reading. Yep. So wonderful theory shipping. And Danielle, we successfully once again recorded season three, episode three. <laughs> Season three, episode three, take two. <laughs> I mean, oh, 
take like four. Take 47. <laughs> <laughs> As I was saying take two, I was like, yeah, we did like I, I, roughly 86 I'm, takes. I'm last pretty sure there are several other Zencaster sessions with multiple sub recordings of us trying to make that work. I can't. But we have gotten to the end of this episode, which I feel very proud of us for. Um, Thank you to producer Amy. Thank you also also to Emily Crandall. Um, Thanks to both of our, you know, absent guests. Um, (laughs) Constitutive outside, if you will, of this episode. Okay. (laughs) Um, Up next in the feed, in two weeks, you'll have American Season 3, Episode 4, Dime Bag. A great episode name. Um, And that is all from us here on Not Quite Great Books. TV Podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon and indirectly producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time. Go play some racquetball.